Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that hopes to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Sylvia Toth is the Cybersecurity Officer at the Secretariat for the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. She's got real expertise and is responsible for supporting participating states in the OSCE, as well as the chair's informal cyber working group. Sylvia's done a tremendous amount of work on CBM's confidence pulling measures. In this episode, we discuss confidence pulling measures, points of contact directories, a cooperation with other regional organizations, and what's next for the OSCE. Welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start with some questions? Tell us how you think things are going generally. What's on your plate right now? Yes, so what we are doing at the the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe related to cyberspace is basically developing and implementing confidence building measures. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the OSCE, short for Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, has a long history of traditional arms control, and it was best placed to also start to work on confidence building measures related to cyber security or cyber ICT security. So this is what we have been working on since 10 years. So we have a lot of experience in in, in that field. The OSC CBMs are also of interest because of the UN developments, but I think we might speak about that later. Mm -hmm. So 2022, the main focus has been in the Organization for Security and Cooperation to continue the implementation of the cyber confidence building measures. Uh, The OSC has uh, developed 16 of these confidence building measures since 2013. This year was uh, specifically difficult, but we still can manage to continue the implementation. But also we were able to take up the capacity building activities again. Due to the, to the pandemic, it was not possible to meet in person and building confidence online is not really working so well. We have experienced, so we have started to take up activities to bring the people into the room again with the specific intention to discuss the implementation of confidence building measures and move them forward. Maybe we step back into a little history, Sylvia. Uh, OSCE, uh, traditionally, before it got into cyber, has always been an organization about confidence and stability measures, right? I mean, it's, uh, it was set up really for that purpose. And it's really been the premier taking the lead for a long time now in cyber conference building measures, not just within the OSC, which I have, it's 57 countries. Is that right? 57, yes. Yeah, like Heinz varieties, right? So 57, <laughs> and they're all different. And it was a pretty major success to get, you know, countries who aren't always on the same page uh, to agree to, as you said, the first set and the second set of confidence building measures. But first, can you talk a little bit about how you tried to export that? In other words, I know that the OSC spent a lot of time talking to other organizations. We talked to Carrie Ann from OAS recently and ASEAN and others. And I think a lot of a lot of other places have looked at OSC 
you know, not just other places, but the UN too, as a model for taking confidence building measures forward. So can you talk a little bit about how you've done that kind of external liaison and, and promotion work? Yes, I, I will try to. So as you have mentioned, uh, the OSC has has this vast experience. And I think on, on one hand, uh, one reason for this that we have uh, engaged with other regional organizations is that the, the first set of confidence building measures were actually developed in parallel when the UNGG started to talk about CBMs, uh, so the 2012-2013 GG. So in that sense, we were, we were developing them in parallel. And I, I think that was an important part. And uh, then we continued uh, with cooperative measures, which were developed in 2016. And since we have these uh, CBMs in such a long time, and of course, these only work if, if they, are, they have a practical applicability, if they are meaningfully implemented. So it's one, one thing to have them on the paper, but then what does this mean? And the OSC participating states have started to work a long time ago to put meaning to that. And this was of interest to the other regional organizations. I know that uh, back... Well, it was a long time ago, five, six years ago. It was uh, more OSC doing the CBMs, the Organization of American States doing a lot on capacity building, while ASEAN was working on the norms implementation. So we kind of divided up this field. But uh, since then, other regional organizations have also started to develop their CBMs. And therefore, it was of interest since we already had them in place they are looking for our experiences on this, but we are also looking for their experiences on the other topics. So, so this is how it has started. Maybe another thing also that until almost, I would say until 2019, so until the start of the parallel processes of the GG and open-ended working group, the work what we have done was very closed. It was there was an intergovernment. It's a, the OSC is an intergovernmental organization. Discussions were done in a working group between states, and the capacity building activities were also closed events, and there was not much information out there. But with the open-ended working group, it became clear to us that uh, this information, what we are doing regarding implementation, might be of interest to other states, other regional organizations. So we have started to develop tools, products, which can be shared. And, and maybe this is also that we have also started to open up with our activity, which further triggered interest. What other states are you talking to? Not regional organizations, but actual states. I heard you might be talking to the Koreans. Are there other examples? Yes, the OSC, besides its, besides its participating states, has partners for cooperation. So there is some kind of formalized cooperation between the states and Korea is one of the of the countries who is spearheading this interregional cooperation and already since 2017 so the the Republic of Korea has suggested to hold uh, what we call interregional conferences every second year Mm -hmm. And we try to share information. So the Southeast Asian region or ASEAN is sharing their information on, on what they are doing on cyber in general. So mm -hmm. not necessarily on CBMs. 
and and we also try to share that. The last of these conferences were held online, but we made sure to have also regional organization representatives there to share what is happening. And not just these three we have mentioned, but also the African Union. And of course, the EU, I always forget the EU, because <laughs> EU and, the, and its member states are all OSC participating states as well. So looking back at the 16 CBMs, which ones do you think are the most useful? Which are, which are the ones that you think are the strongest? So the CBM, which in my opinion is the one which is the basis, the foundation for all the other CBMs, is the one on nominating points of contact. Hmm. So uh, this is in the OSD, it's CBM 8. We have policy and technical points of contact. Uh, this was already, so we are already collecting this data since 2014. But of course, uh, it was just a database. We were thinking about how to make that sure that it's really up-to-date information and to get all the countries on board. And we have done outreach. We have also done so-called communication checks. Mm -hmm with which uh, we have made sure that these points of contacts are really the people we want to being who we want who we can reach and who are available and that these contact details are updated and the OSC was very successful in that uh, back in 2015 we had around 60% of states who have nominated such a point of contact by 2020 it was 98% so mm -hmm. Who were the holdouts? Uh, I will not tell you. Yeah, that. you don't have to answer that. Uh, ah, too bad. Good yeah. try. Good try, though, Jim. Um, but we will we will open a lottery. Uh, on the lottery. <laughs> People can uh, send. But it. but that's an interesting issue, Sylvia. That you know, in some other regional organizations like ARF, for instance, just creating the point of contact directory has been a huge. Really, uh, it's hard to understand why that's become such an issue and so hard to do. Whereas, as you said, it's a good basic. And now the UN, as you know, in the open-ended working group, the second open-ended working group is talking about such a CBM point of contact directory, which obviously I'm sure that you're you're lending your expertise from what you've done with that for that. So I'm mean, curious what your take is on the UN doing it. Obviously, you, know, you have a robust one within there. And I guess the other thing that you mentioned, I, I used to be involved in several of these lists, like the 24-7 list, for instance, and the Meridian list. And as you said, it's not easy to keep these lists up to date and make sure they're robust. And doing ping tests or tests, we call them ping tests, but communication tests is really important because it doesn't make sense to have a list if no one's actually home when you try to call them. So just you're just curious on two things. One, what your experience has been in building that list of, you know, when you do these communication tests, are people actually answering the phone? And how are you helping the UN try to realize this yeah. idea of having a more global directory? Yeah, first of all, it sounds so easy that, oh, you just need contact yeah. details of the policy and the technical point of contact. But one thing which has also been kind of our aim to do is to make sure that this is also some kind, that some kind of national coordination is behind this, because this is very important. Because you have one person or maybe two persons who are participating in the work of the OSCE, but for 
in case of an incident, you need to have your whole national structures behind to solve the problem. Our communication checks are done over email. So the purpose of the communication checks is mainly to, on one hand, to make sure that the contact data is up to date and that we really have the people behind the email address, mm -hmm. but uh, also to have national structures be prepared that the, the point of contact has also access and coordinates nationally when it comes to, to for example, in case of a cyber incident, and our communication checks are usually have usually two steps. For the first step, we ask states to confirm the receipt of the email. And as a second task, we usually have more complex uh, tasks regarding coordination nationally, or even we had tasks where we asked uh, states to, to to work with each other. So we have paired up states to work with each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is uh, one of the aims of the communication check. And I don't remember what the other part So, so the other part of the question was how your, your experience is informing the UN's, the OEWG's ambition or proposal to set up a broader global network for confidence building measures. Yes, uh, I have shared that uh, our information and and I have worked with UNIDIR, for example, who have done a survey or a research on points of contact networks. So we have talked to them, but uh, also the chair of the open-ended working group has invited regional organizations at the last uh, informal intersessional meeting to share their experiences. And uh, I spoke there. And we are also making sure these days that our presentations are made available on the UNODA website. So I have shared what, what we are doing regarding uh, the, the point of contact network and what we have achieved. Maybe another thing what was important for us to create that uh, point of contact network, but also the partnership and the cooperation. In 2019, we have introduced the annual meeting of points of contact. So mm -hmm. we brought the people into the room so that they can meet and they can reach out to each other. And this was a very successful endeavor, I have to say, and unfortunately cut short by the pandemic, but we will re-engage with the points of contact because we are in cyberspace and we are doing email communication checks, but the personal exchanges can never be made up from virtuals. I think I had experience with the G eight 24 seven network. And as good as that network was for evidentiary purposes, bringing them together in Rome for two training sessions, like four years apart, wasn't valuable. I mean, actually, you know, it's weird in cyberspace, you think you do everything virtually, but bringing people together built trust in a way that you can never do it online. Exactly. And what I like to say is also that uh, it makes a difference to put a, a face behind the email address or behind the name. What <laughs> advice would you have for the OEWG chair moving forward? I mean, can you just take the the OSCE CBMs, which are probably the best out there, and translate them to a global basis, or do you need adjustment? What what advice would you give them? I think the, the, the OSC CBMs are very specific and has been negotiated with the 57 participating states and not everything might work. And 
I like to say that we share our experience to be inspired by, but not necessarily to completely take them as they are. I think starting with the point of contact directory is an important step because you have to know who the contacts, who the people are, who, who you can talk to and who you can reach. But I also think that it's very difficult to set that up. You need a lot of practice and a lot of work to, to make that happen. However, I also have to say that initially, I think to start off, it's good to have those who are voluntarily doing it. So set up, make the decision, let those countries who are willingly share this start to work with, and then see what is working, what is not working. And then once you have your directory working with and operational with those who are voluntarily providing this information, then go forward and try to get more countries on board. So I have a couple other CBMs uh, using your handy-dandy magnetic sticker to, to refer to, but I want to ask about one is CBM3, which is uh, hold consultations. And I, as I understand, the, the purpose of that is if there is a conflict or if there is an issue, that you can convene the various countries together to actually talk to each other. Has that yeah, certainly there's been a lot of conflicts and there's been a lot of issues. Has that actually happened or is how's that how's it expressed itself in practice since it's been adopted? Because it was one of the first set. So so CBM three on consultations actually was one of the first CBMs where states tried to work on how it can be implemented in practice. And uh, it's actually within the OSCs not envisaged as a group exercise, if I may say it so uh, informally. So how the, the participating states see it is more of a bilateral outreach and if necessary with third parties. Sort of like a dispute resolution mechanism? Uh, more like that. And uh, actually there is a step-by-step -step process which has been worked out. So states have worked. This is, I will not say more about this because <laughs> this is an internal doc. No just simply because it's an internal document and sure. I'm not entitled to share that. But what has been done is really that states sit together in the informal working group and have gone through what might be the steps, what you would like to do in case if you request a consultation. And I should have started with that. So the CBMs are voluntary. So you can choose to use that process, but you can also choose not to use that. And I also have to say a secretariat, I'm not necessarily involved if there is any outreach or any conflict resolution. Some of the other voluntary CBMs, how are they working? Like there's the one exchange information on national doctrines, policies and programs. How many states have done that? Is that something people do willingly and is it updated or is there a need to update it? So that's, I think, CBM 7. There are several CBMs which uh, which are about information sharing. Yeah. So there is also one on on sharing information on threats. Uh, so there are several of these CBMs which is about information sharing. How it's done is uh, various ways. One of our main venues for sharing this information is actually the informal working group. And this is also a CBM, CBM 11 is about uh, in mm -hmm. the informal working group. 
it meets uh, three to four times a year. And during the informal working group, there is a standing agenda point, which is called implementation update. And their states are sharing this information. But we also have an, a closed online platform where each country has a, its own page. That's where we have the, the contact details, but it also provides space to share information. And for example, we have strategies, legislative documents, so publicly available documents related to the respective state. We have this uploaded and every participating state can access that. Do you think that's something the UN could pick up or would you prefer to keep it at the OSCE? Because they've talked about that as sort of a national repository. Exactly. I mean, if if the OSCE platform can be shared with the UN, that has to be decided by the participating states. So, yeah. And I think it's mainly just the structure. How it's updated is another question. So first you need to have a structure and then and then you can see how you update it. Unidir has, for example, started to do this kind of mapping. So there are many, not just Unidir, but I think there are also other places where you can find, for example, information on strategies of or cyber laws or similar information. Well, well, let's talk about one because there's a connection you have with it, which is GFCE. First of all, it ties in with another one of the CBMs, capacity building. Second, you are co-chair and have been for a while of the task force under, I guess, group one that deals with, among other things, diplomacy, CBMs, and norms. So so how have you used your experience uh, in leadership within the OSCE to sort of move that agenda forward more globally within the GFC and, and tie it back to the capacity building work you're doing at the OSCE too? The OSC, first of all, is member of the GFC, which is important, uh, I think. And as far as I know, all the regional organizations are. And yep. yes, capacity building is an important CBM and an important task for us. The GFC has this task force on cyber diplomacy, CBMs, and norms. And I was asked to be the, the task force co-lead, I think, three years ago. And I think it's a very important venue to share information, to share what has happened. And it definitely helps us to know what is done by other regions. It helps us to get together with the community, but also for us to, to, to share our information. I have to mention the civil portal, which you have mentioned, I think mm -hmm. several times, Chris, already. We have all our trainings and all our materials are uploaded there. And we are also usually using the civil portal to find information on specific topics. Uh, so that I can recommend. And I think the value of the GFC is also that it's not just states, it's also other stakeholders. And as an intergovernmental organization, it's not always so easy to, to be in touch with all the stakeholders. And the GFC provides a good venue for that. We had a point out to... Listeners, it's cybilportal.org in case you want to look for it. Yeah, and it is, it does have a compilation. It has all the OSCE things and a lot of the stuff from the other guests we've had. You mentioned that multi stakeholder approach, which obviously is true for the GFC, but one of the CBMs, the OSCE in the second tranche, I think, was public private partnerships. So, how, how have you 
brought that forward. As you said, the OSCE is an intergovernmental organization, just like the UN is. And certainly the UN's had some difficulty incorporating other stakeholders. So I'm just interested how the OSCE has dealt with that. Yes, I mean, in the OSC, there are several platforms where we are working. So the informal working group is obviously the intergovernmental part, but even there, the chair invites sometimes other stakeholders to give presentations. So they are not participating in the whole work, but they are, they have the opportunity to share information. Then also the OSC chairmanship who is leading the whole organization throughout the year, has usually annual conferences on cyber. And uh, during these conferences, we always have seen other stakeholders being invited to the sessions and to talk about their activities and to facilitate that exchange. Uh, thirdly, our capacity building activities also involve stakeholders. So we are not doing we are delivering trainings to the government representatives, but we always like to involve, be it, we had GFC, we had Microsoft, we had Oxford University. So we had several experts and other stakeholders participate in these trainings and, and give insight. And yes, CBM 14 on public-private partnership is an important CBM. And maybe I should mention here the initiative, what we have, which is called Adopt the CBM. <laughs> like being adopt being an adoptive parent. So and this has been one of the ways to create ownership regarding CBM implementation. And there are already nine CBMs which have these adoptive parents. And the CBM 14 is also one of them. So a group of countries has started to work on this. And Early next year, we will have a report out, which is about good practices within the OSC region regarding public-private partnership. And this will be, again, a public report. And so it's just countries who are the adopters, right? Yes, yes. But I also have to say that the countries are bringing in the private sector view. Okay. I hope so it's not just definitely... the usual suspects, but uh, we'll see. Cause no, actually... I will not say states, but actually it's not just the usual suspect. So how it has been done, the work, it was one on one hand, a questionnaire, which we have sent out. And I think we received 35 responses, which is quite good. Looking at how many states we have and also the composition of the organization. But we also had interviews with many of the states, deep dive interviews. Sylvia, you, you've been doing this for a while, and so you might be one of the pioneer cyber diplomats. What would you tell people you drew on from your background that made you effective in cyber diplomacy? What are the skills people need? And then maybe if we have time, we can talk a little bit about the move away from an arms control, arms control approach to cyber diplomacy. But when you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as a cyber diplomat? I think we do. What were the skills that you found most useful? Yeah, I, I consider myself now a cyber diplomat. I don't, I'm not considering myself a pioneer because for me, this was Chris definitely as the first cyber diplomat. But uh, it's difficult for me to say what you need to do. I have a very specific background because I always enjoyed to work with other countries or with people from other countries. And I also have some ICT work background. So for me, it was not so difficult to do ICT, but uh, definitely I think what is important is 
to enjoy the work with other nations. So an international relations background is fine. An understanding of, of technical issues, it doesn't mean that you need to be a, a, a coder, but being able to understand the terminology helps. But I think nowadays there are so many skill sets which help in this endeavor. I think openness, willing to listen to others, because you have to, in cyber diplomacy or in diplomacy generally, you have to be able to listen to each other. Maybe these, I don't know. Hey, so just on that, so you, I think when I first met you, you were at the Hungarian Foreign Ministry. And I think this is around the time of the global conference, if I recall. Hungary was the, after the London, the so-called London process after London, Hungary was the second installment of that. And Sylvia, you were you were there at the ministry. In those early days, was it hard to convince the ministry that they needed a cyber person or that conference helped kind of propel that issue within the foreign ministry in Hungary that led to your later work both there and, and at the OSCE? Yes, actually, you're right, Chris. The London process and the, and that Budapest hosted the second mm -hmm. uh, conference of this London process helped to establish that post. But that was, I actually had two predecessors before I became the cyber coordinator at the Hungarian MFA. So it helped to, to create the position. But then you also need to be aware of what is happening because the world, the cyberspace is moving on so quickly and you have to be able to cover so many, so many areas. But uh, yeah, the most difficult is really to get the political attention and that to get the political buy-in. And this is what we are still hearing when we are doing trainings and, and or when I do presentations at other organizations other institutions that this is always a question which comes up. And one of my takes is always saying that when you have a big cyber attack, then you get the political attention, but you don't necessarily want to have a cyber attack to get the political <laughs> attention. So, so this is a difficult thing. Yeah. Budapest was a success. And I think the first meeting in London was also a success. Mm -hmm. Delhi, uh, Delhi was okay. Why do you think this thing collapsed, Sylvia? Do you think it's worth trying to resuscitate? Do we need this kind of informal process? Or are there enough formal processes at the OEWG and at the OSCE and the other regional organizations that the London process or something like it is no longer necessary? What do you think the reasons were for it slowing down? What do we need to put in its place? Or do we have what we need now? I think we are in a very different world than, for example, back in 2015 when the GFC was created and, and I think that conference, the, the Hague one in the Global Conference on Cyberspace was a very successful one. Mm -hmm. um, I think 2017 was a very difficult year for various reasons, uh, mainly geopolitical, and I, I don't want to go more into detail, but definitely 2017 was a difficult year. And many of the, of the processes needed to be rethought after this year, not just the global conference on cyberspace, but that was the year also where the GG didn't... didn't it, failed. Um, it, re it failed to reach consensus. A hiccup, it had a hiccup. Yeah, I tried <laughs> yeah. to 
I tried to avoid the word failure, but yeah, yeah it, just, it, it failed. It didn't, it didn't reach consensus. And, uh, it was also the year that the Russians blackballed me. So yeah, and just in case Karsten's listening, we don't want to offend him. So uh, <laughs> failure isn't the right word. Didn't didn't reach consensus, which is right. crucial for the UN and probably crucial for the OSCE to some extent. It was crucial. That was what I wanted to continue with. That the OSCE planned to have a third set of CBMs developed. And after 2017, that was simply not possible. So that is why the focus on implementation mm -hmm. has increased uh, due to the geopolitical situation. And I think nowadays the situation has also changed regarding what regional organizations are doing, but also the open-ended working group. Uh, this is my personal opinion that with the open-ended working group, the topic got much more mainstreamed and there is much more interest now in cyber diplomacy, simply just because it's not behind closed doors. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that the GGs were not important. They were very important in the initial stage, but I think also the world has changed and the interest has changed a lot. So I think the thing that's missing, though, from the global conference, both Sylvia and Jim, is that what that did was bring people who didn't do this for their ordinary job. It brought foreign ministers and interior ministers into the fray in a way that I think was helpful to raise that awareness. Now, you could argue that now they're dealing with it more in things like the UN General Assembly and stuff. And so maybe that's taken its place. But to go back to raising this as a political priority, I, I think you still need something so it's not just the usual ministerial suspects, but the foreign ministers who deal with lots of issues. But if you want to mainstream it, you got to get their attention too. Yes, it could be. Maybe I'm I my my view from the OSC is a little bit more restricted. I don't know at the moment. So yeah, I think the days of a global agreement. Yeah, are, are over, and I hope it's only temporary. But 2015 turned out to be the high water mark. Then they got <laughs> endorsement in 2021. I agree with you. 2017 was it was the year that indicated that the geopolitical environment has shifted in a way that made further agreement next to impossible. So when you look at OSC, what what is the what's your work plan for 2023? What do you hope to do? Implementation is good. The norms are great. Working with the UN is good. That would be helpful to help guide them. What is it? What is it you're thinking about doing next year? I mean, we definitely need to further re-engage our participating states uh, in the work because, as I said before, it, we have lost them in the online world or some of them in the online world. Mm -hmm. And one of our priorities is really to bring them into the room and to talk. Of course, we are looking at what is happening at the open-ended working group. Now, recently, the program of action, the resolution on program of action has been adopted. And it says one of the points is to have consultations with regional organizations. So I'm definitely looking forward to what this might entail. I think the, the, the focus on CBM implementation will still be there. There is no other choice. This year was very difficult, but still the OSC continued. It's very practical work on, on CBM implementation, especially on critical infrastructure. I expect that there will be more outcomes which we can share with the public. So I'm just hoping to get 
re to get to get everyone re-engaged in the process. Great. Well, Sylvia, is there anything else we missed that you want to say? You know, again, thank you for for being on OSC. He's done a lot, and it looks like we'll be doing a lot in the future, particularly around implementation and capacity building and spreading the word to other organizations. But anything else you want to add? Yes, I would very much like to invite everyone who listened to this podcast to check out our e-learning course on the OSC CBMs, which is on the OSC learning portal. Thanks. This has been great.